Pastor Dan, if we could make a change in our service schedule this evening, I'd like to conclude with that hymn, My Soul Finds Rest. Can we sing that again at the end of the hour? Gentlemen, if you can cue that up. Really appreciate. Um, as I have labored through Psalm 62 this week, and as we are about to study Psalm 62 to recognize the, the text of Psalm 62 there in that psalm, that song, My Soul Finds Rest, we can sing that again in a moment. Psalm 62 is where we are this evening. Psalm 62, like so many of the psalms in the Psalter, Psalm 62 is a psalm of David. David addresses this psalm to the chief musician, perhaps the, the choir director or the worship leader for Israel's corporate gatherings, and David addresses this psalm to Jedithan. And of course, we ask, who is Jedithan? Evidently, Jedithan was a musician involved in Israel's public worship because he's also mentioned in the titles of Psalm 39 and Psalm 77. But if we were to go back to 1 Chronicles 16 and 2 Chronicles 25, we would learn that Jedithan and his sons were not only musicians, but they were also, catch this, they were doorkeepers in the tabernacle. 1 Chronicles 16, 2 Chronicles 20, 25. And uh, Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He said, those who serve well make the best of singers, and those who occupy the highest posts in the choir must not be ashamed to wait at the posts of the door of the Lord's house. And so David writes this psalm not just to the professional musicians in the house, but the doorkeepers of the house in Jedithan. And imagine with me a hypothetical scenario as we introduce this psalm. Let me add a little sanctified speculation to, to introduce this psalm that was addressed to Jedithan. Imagine that King David got to know Jedithan in, in a personal way, for Jedithan was always at the door of the tabernacle, welcoming the guests, greeting the people as they came to worship. Of course, one would be would be King David. And imagine that King David also observed Jedithan's participation in the music ministry of the tabernacle uh, there along the way as Jedithan would have played his instruments. If we read the Chronicles, we would know that Jedithan played the trumpets and the cymbals. And imagine that one day Jedithan asked his friend, King David, asked King David, how are you doing? Perhaps some of the questions that I printed there at the top of your notes. It's been a rough week for you, King David. I know you're going through a tough time right now. How are you handling the pressure? Are you afraid of how the situation might turn out? Are you worried about what might happen? What are you going to do? And to these questions and this inquiry, because of that conversation, that hypothetical conversation between King David and Jedithan, David responded with Psalm 62. This is David's response, perhaps, to, to Jedithan. Look at Psalm 62, verse number one. Truly, my soul silently waits for God. This is King David's answer, if you'll allow to Jedithan. Truly, my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. And in one way, that sounds so pedestrian, almost cliche, but in another way, it's so profound. And so from Psalm 62, I've prepared a message titled, Only God, Only God. Let's pause for prayer. Father, we come to you now as we approach your holy word.
We come in humility. We come in anticipation. Lord, we are eager to understand the teaching of this text, this psalm, as David wrote it and gave it to the musicians in the tabernacle and gave it to Jedithan. Lord, I pray that you would give us insight and understanding by your spirit. I pray that you would give us courage to accept, embrace um, its, its teaching for our own lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I think we could neatly divide this psalm into three stanzas that are separated by the two selah moments, those notations that suggest that we take a pause in our reading and we think about what we've read. You'll see it at the end of verse number four and you'll see it at the end of verse number eight. And so I prepared a three-point outline that follows that structure, verses one through four, verses five through eight, verses nine through, through 12. Let's begin with verse one again. Oh God, you are, I'm sorry, verse number one. Truly, my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. And from David's response here, perhaps to Jedithan, I would offer you number one, I would charge us in this way, speak loudly in surrendered silence. Speak loudly in surrendered silence. In my New King James version here, Verse number one begins with the English word truly. It's the translation of a little Hebrew particle that is most commonly translated alone or only. My New King James says, truly my soul silently waits for God. If you have the ESV, it says, for God alone my soul waits in silence. The New American Standard, my soul waits in silence for God only. Bible commentator Derek Kidner explains that that little Hebrew word is an emphasizer. Its insistent repetition gives the the psalm a tone of special earnestness, alone or only or truly. And that little Hebrew particle provides emphasis six times in the, the first nine verses, and I want you to find them with me. As I mentioned in verse number one, it's translated truly in my New King James or only, or alone. Verse number two, he only, or he alone, is my rock and my salvation. Verse number four, they only consult or plan to cast him down. Verse five, wait silently for God alone, or for God alone, wait in silence. Verse six, he only is my rock and my salvation. Then in verse number nine, it's translated surely in my New King James and and the NIV. It's only in the New American Standard. And David's point is this, his hope and his trust is fixed in God alone and no other. So think about this as you perhaps are, at times you are waiting. You're waiting for answers to a question or you're waiting for news about a situation. You're waiting for a decision to be rendered about a matter. You're waiting for help to arrive for your problem and you have reached out to every source. You have contacted every possible source to get a response and, and you've been put on hold on the phone. Or you've had to wait for someone to get back to you. Or you've had to appeal to a higher level decision maker like a supervisor or a manager. It's so frustrating. In David's case, he says he'll wait silently for God alone. 
British Baptist F.B. Meyer wrote this. I've copied it for you there in the back of your notes. He says, this is why God keeps you waiting. All that is of self and nature must be silence. One voice after another cease to boast. One light after another be put out until the soul is shut up to God alone. Now, having said all that, why would I charge us to speak loudly with surrendered silence? Number one, speak loudly with surrendered silence. But notice that in these first two verses, David is not silent, as in not saying anything. He, in fact, is making a very loud statement. He's declaring something very definite and absolute in the biggest way, for he is making a statement public by giving it to the chief musician, by giving it to Jedithan to, to publish and broadcast. And so don't misunderstand the idea of waiting silently to mean that nothing was ever said. David spoke very loudly, even publicly, about his God in verses 1 and 2, and now David is has words for his enemies in verses 3 and 4. Look at verse number 3. How long will you attack a man? You shall be slain, all of you, like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his high position. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Now, verse number 3, if you're looking there, it's, the image is clear. But there is difference in understanding about who that image applies to. My new King James makes it sound like David's enemies are the leaning wall and the tottering fence in verse 3. However, modern translations make it sound like David is being pushed down like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. And and I think it's actually the latter. Look at verse 3 and and listen to these renderings in our English Bibles. Verse 3 in the ESV says this, How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall and a tottering fence? Verse 3 in the New American Standard reads, How long will you assail a man that you may murder him, all of you, like a leaning wall and a tottering fence? I actually think in this case, the New International Version is clearest. It's most helpful to us. How long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down this leaning wall and this tottering fence? And so David's enemies were trying to topple him with their lies. To to his face, they blessed him. But their purpose was to curse him. And David was about to collapse under their attack. Stop and think about that. So perhaps in our sanctified imagination, Jedithan says to King David, how you doing? How are you holding up? What do you think is going to happen? What are you going to do? Because clearly you are being crushed, pushed over, or crushed by this opposition. Selah. Or stop and think about that. What do you do when someone gossips about you, or slanders you, or libels you, or threatens you? Well, you can light up the phones. You can call everyone that you know to set the record straight. You can take to social media and you can defend your position. You could stew and stress about it. Or you can silently wait for God. That's speaking loudly in surrendered silence. And I think the loudest statement that we can make 
in some of these scenarios is to do what Moses told Israel to do in Exodus 14 when they were at the Red Sea. The Egyptians were bearing down against them. Do you remember what Moses said? He said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. That's the surrendered silence. So Jonathan asked David, how are you doing? King David, it's been a rough week for you. I, I know you're going through a tough time right now. How are you handling the pressure? Are you afraid of how this situation might turn out? Are you worried about what might happen? What are you going to do? And so David answers Jedithan in verses 1 and 2, 3 and 4. But never mind how David answers Jedithan's questions. David needed to answer his own questions. And I would submit that if David was responding to one like Jedithan in verses 1 through 4, David is now going to respond to himself beginning in verse number 5. Look at verse 5. My soul. He's addressing himself now. He's talking to himself. My soul, wait silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength, and my refuge is in God. Number one, speak loudly with surrendered silence. Number two, stand firmly with composed confidence. Stand firmly with composed confidence. How do you stand firmly? How do you stand strong and compose yourself when you're under attack? Where do you find the confidence when you are threatened by a situation or a circumstance or an individual. And I would submit that the answer is by repeating the truth back to yourself. Now follow this. What David said in verses 5, 6, and 7 is very similar to what David said in verses 1 and 2. But in verses 5, 6, and 7, he's speaking to himself And we find this practice throughout the Psalms. In fact, in Psalm 42 and 43, David repeatedly asked himself, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? And David repeatedly answered himself, hope in God, hope in God. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones who wrote a book titled Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cure. And the opening chapter is about Psalm 42 and 43, and and he asks this. It's there in the back of your notes, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? And he goes on to explain that rather than just going along with the thoughts that come to you in the morning, which bring back all of the problems of yesterday, you've got to take yourself in hand, preach to yourself, and question yourself. You ask yourself, why are you cast down? And then you speak to yourself, you answer yourself, you exhort yourself to hope in God. And that's what's happening here in this psalm, and he is composing himself. David with confidence, with composed confidence. So then, at this point, um, we need to, to think about God. Who is God? And we're going we're gonna to use a little practical theology here, 
and we're going to speak to ourselves about the person of God. He is our only hope in God alone. Um, And there are numerous descriptors of God here in these verses. Find them with me in verses 1 and 2. He is salvation. In verse 2, he's a rock and defense. In verse 7, he's strength. In verses 7 and 8, he's, he's a refuge. And there are others perhaps we could find. And, and okay, that, that's good. But let's ask a different question now. Not, not the question, who is God? Who is God to you? Don't miss the personal pronouns or the personal pronoun, my. In verses 5 through 7, the personal pronoun, my is found nine times. So allow me to read verses five through seven again. This is David's speaking to himself, and I'm going to emphasize that personal pronoun. Verse number five. My soul waits silently for God alone. My expectation is from him. He only is my rock, my salvation, He is my defense, I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Do you see what just happened there? David is not only looking to God alone as a higher power or as a Hebrew deity, God was David's God personally. And what David is saying in verses 5 to 7 are a repeated restatement of the same truth in verses 1 and 2, but he's piling over and over and over again with personal possession. My God is, is these things to me. John Calvin wrote this. I've copied it for you. One expression is here heaped upon another. And this apparently because he wished to reign or restrain that infirmity of disposition which makes us so prone to slide into wrong exercise. Infirmity of disposition. We might say that's a mood. Have you ever been in a mood? Have you ever had a a bad mood which makes us slide into wrong exercise? We may throw out a passing and an occasional acknowledgement that our only hope, help, is to be found in God and yet shortly display our distrust in him by busying ourselves in all directions to supplement what we consider defective in his aid. Well, what does that mean? We're in a bad mood. We say the right things, but then we, we turn and we busy ourselves in, in ways that belie our trust in God alone. So we're happy to read this psalm this evening. We're happy to make it our own. But then we scramble in our own strength to take care of the very same matters that we've just given to God. I do this all the time. And uh, I cast my cares upon the Lord. I leave them with him. And then I work to death because he might not come through for me, right? And I need a backup plan. When one asks, how are you doing? We answer in a flustered, exasperated way. We confess that we can barely keep it together. Now, in the frailty of our humanity, I get that. Maybe this evening you're here and you're barely keeping it together. And you aren't standing strong or standing firm 
with composed confidence. I, I get that. But let me encourage you to look to your God. To your God. He is your strength. He is your defense. He is your refuge. And speak the truth back to yourself, not about the character of the impersonal God, but the personal God. Now, verse number eight, it's as if David is snapping out of his own internal conversation. And he's now speaking aloud again to to whoever is hearing him or reading this psalm, verse eight. Trust in him at all times, you people. In verse four, he's talking to his own soul. Verse number in verse number five, but now in verse eight, trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us together collectively. And perhaps now you notice some contradictions that are occurring at this point. If we are to be silent, that's Roman numeral number one. And if we are to be composed, that's Roman numeral number two. In what way do we pour out our hearts to God? Verse number eight. It seems like when I pour out my heart to God, it's the opposite of being silent. It's the opposite of being composed. It's verbal and emotional, and it's a mess. Think about that. Selah. I propose that when you pour out your heart to the Lord in that messy way in which you do, with groanings that can't even be uttered, you pour out your heart to the Lord in verbal or emotional ways, it brings you to silent surrender. That's Roman numeral number one. It brings you to a composed confidence. That's Roman numeral number two. It's in this way that we speak loudly to the Lord, to ourselves, to everyone who is watching. I trust in the Lord alone. It's in this way that we're standing firm even when we're taking a beating from a harsh critic or a painful circumstance and we feel like that leaning wall or that tottering fence we're being pushed over. Of course, the New Testament equivalent of this in my mind is Philippians 4, 6, and 7, be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, it's unexplainable, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So, in this first stanza, in the first stanza of the psalm, David is is looking at his enemies in relationship to himself. They're strong They're pushing him over like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence. However, now, in this third stanza, he's looking at his enemies in relationship to God. And he will discover and declare that God is stronger than their pushing. Verse number nine. Surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed on the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. Do not trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy, for you render to each one according to his work. So number one, speak loudly in surrendered silence. Number two, stand firmly with composed confidence. Number three, see clearly the divine difference see clearly the divine difference. And let me explain what I mean by this. We use various units 
um, as standards of measurement. We measure time by seconds and minutes and hours. We measure length by inches and feet and yards. We measure volume by pints and cups or cubic feet. We measure mass or weight by pounds. And in the ancient world, so many things were measured by weight on a, on a scale in which each side was not counted but weighed against the other. That's the illustration that David is using in verse number nine. In verse number nine, David says that if we were to be weighed on a scale, nothing would register. If, if David's enemies were put on a scale against God, the scale wouldn't even move because the divine difference couldn't be greater. Think about the difference between God and man. Think about the difference between the creator and the creation. See the difference clearly. First consider letter A, man is nothing. Verses 9 and 10. Man is nothing. However, we are intimidated and impressed by man. That's subpoint number one. Intimidated by might. Intimidated by might. We get intimidated by our fellow man and his might or his strength. It begins in our youth when there's the bully on the playground. And then as adults, it's the bully on the job or in the public square. It's the, the activist or the, the corporate giant. And we're afraid, we're intimidated by the strength or the power or the might of man. Proverbs warns us that the fear of man brings a snare. In fact, Jesus said, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And and so when we look at man, we, we see, we think... Um, that man is powerful. So we're intimidated by might. Secondly, number two, we're impressed by money. We're impressed by money. We think of the wealthy as the strong ones, for they can live above everyone. The, the Joneses next door, the uber-wealthy celebrities, and we're impressed by them. We, we, we call these people with might and money, historically, we call them the aristocracy. They're the upper class, the, the nobility. They're the ruling class, the establishment. Today, the politically correct term of Marxism and critical theory is oppressors. But that idea isn't new. That's not a modern phenomenon, you understand. But rather, it's as old as time. In fact, I find it there in verse number 10 of of my New King James, the New American Standard uses the word oppression there. The ESV and the NIV use the word extortion in verse 10. David is describing the reality of might and money that is leveraged against others. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not endorsing Marxism. I'm not endorsing critical theory. I'm simply acknowledging that that ideology is here always existing among men. And sometimes it feels like the weight or the pressure of these people pushes us over and crushes us like a tottering wall or a leaning wall and a tottering fence. And so we are intimidated and impressed by man. But, but man is nothing. Man is lighter than air if we were to weigh man against God on a scale. If letter A, man is nothing, letter B, God is, is everything. God is everything. Look at verse 11. God has spoken once, twice, I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Subpoint number one, his word, his word. Now, the once, twice language there in verse 11, it was common in Hebrew poetic device. It means that God repeated his word and impressed upon David more than one time. Today, we might say to one another, if I've said it once, I've said it a million times. 
and with hyperbole, we're claiming to have repeated ourselves over and over and over again. Bible commentator Matthew Henry has a twist on this. He says this, I've copied it for you. To some, God speaks twice and they will not hear once. To others, he speaks once and they hear twice. Okay, so what is it that God has said? What is God's word in this case? He has told us, verse 11, that power belongs to him. God is omnipotent. Therefore, why do we fear the arm of the wicked? God is omnipotent. That's his, his word. This reminds me of Psalm 37. In fact, go with me quickly there to Psalm 37. And I might just cherry pick just a few verses from Psalm 37, I think, that reflect this very theme. Psalm 37, verse number one, do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Look to verse 7. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Verse number 9. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Verse 12. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord taunt, laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword, they have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy, to, to oppress them, to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart. They'll be impaled by their own weapon, and their bows shall be broken. They'll be disarmed. Look to verse 20. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall va vanish into smoke. They shall vanish away. Look to verse 35. I have seen the wicked in great power. There's a theme. The power, the strength of the wicked, and spreading himself like a native green tree. Jump to verse 39. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord he is their strength in time of trouble, and the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. Maybe I should have read all of Psalm 37, but you can return back to Psalm 62. If Psalm 62, 11 tells us of God's word, God has spoken. His word is that power belongs to God his word, then verse 12 tells us of God's way. God's way. Look at verse 12. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy, for you render to each one according to his work. What is God's way? There are two points to God's way in verse 12. I, I don't have these as sub, sub, sub points, you see, but as I'm looking at verse 12, I, I see first God's way is merciful. Verse 12, and to you, O Lord, belongs mercy, meaning that God is patient, he is kind, he is long-suffering, he's merciful to us, and we're glad for that. Um, but God is also patient and kind and long-suffering and merciful to the wicked. We don't know if we're glad about that, but that is God's character, that is his way. And so perhaps when we are incensed 
by the wickedness of the wicked. Maybe, in fact, God is being merciful to them in their wickedness, way more merciful than we would be. But then secondly, um, God is righteous and just. You see it there at the end of verse 12? Um, God will settle the accounts in the end. We don't have to rail against the inequities and the injustices that are happening all around us or to us. We may be the victim of some slight today, but God will make it right in his time and in his way because his word to us is that he is all-powerful. So what's our takeaway from this psalm? In my mind's eye, I imagine Jedithan, the doorkeeper at the tabernacle, the professional musician in the tabernacle, asking King David, how are you doing? Are you holding up? What do you think is going to happen? What are you going to do about it? And King David responds with this psalm and says to Jedithan, I am going to speak loudly in surrendered silence. I'm going to trust God alone. I'm going to stand firmly with composed confidence. I'm going to trust God alone. I am going to see clearly that man is nothing, that God is everything. And the difference for me is that the divine character of God is merciful and is just. And so my hope, my rest is in God alone or only God. Let's pray. God, forgive us for the many times that we scramble in our own resources to solve our own problems. Lord, we have problems. But man's wisdom cannot solve man's problems. I pray that you would help each of us individually and corporately to look to you alone, only God, God alone, and rest in you. For I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.